Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. What I want to do again this morning, the Lord being our helper, is speak on the superiority of Jesus Christ to the angels. Last week we basically gave you a course in biblical angelology. Angelology 101. What does the Bible have to say about angels? And this theme probably would extend, we can say, into the second chapter as well. The entirety of chapters 1 and 2 of Hebrews has to do with Christ's superiority to the angels. And I want to begin by reading a text today in the second chapter, though we will only make reference to it or use it as a springboard to talk about the balance of chapter 1 today. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. I will start by reading this passage today. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownedest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. I wonder if you have ever heard the word hierarchy. Are you familiar with that word, hierarchy? A hierarchy is an authority structure organized into levels of responsibility or positions of rank, if you please. We might say in modern or common man's terminology, a pecking order. If you've ever had chickens, you know that they develop a hierarchy in which one becomes dominant and rules the rest. A pecking order among animals. If you have more than one dog, you'll usually have one, which is the alpha, which is in charge. We're all familiar with the military hierarchy, where you have a commander-in-chief as the ultimate authority, and then beneath him, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who are generally four- and five-star generals. And beneath them, you have your different ranks, all the way down to privates or enlistees. We see it in a corporation. We see a hierarchy. As you have the uh, owner and the CEO of the business, and beneath him, you have your board of directors, and beneath them, you have your managers, and then your employees. So there's a structure of rank or levels of authority within every part of our world. You can see it in nature, you can see it in business, you can see it in politics, every part of the world with which we're familiar. Hierarchy is the main idea in Hebrews 1 and 2. And you heard it in the text that I read just a moment ago. Thou madest man a little lower than the angels. So angels are above men in the hierarchy or the structure of creation. 
And then he says, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. So he too, when he became a man, assumed a position in the hierarchy of nature below the angels. But yet in the fifth verse that we read, we read this. Under the angels, God has not put in subjection the world to come. And the implication in that verse is, man will be in charge. He will be superior in the future world. He will even be above the angels then. But right now, he's a little lower. So the idea in Hebrews 1 and 2 is hierarchy. And what the writer is doing in this passage is he's discussing the supremacy of Christ. And the question he's answering is if the Son of God assumed humanity at the Incarnation. And man in the hierarchy of creation is subordinate to the angels. Then how can it be true that Christ is now superior to the angels? That's the question that he is answering in this chapter. Now last week, like I said, we gave you a crash course in biblical angelology. And we learned that angels are spiritual, not physical beings. They're intelligent, sentient creatures that God made. So God created the angels. They're not eternal they're intelligent, they're spirit beings, and they cannot die. We learned that angels cannot die, and they do not procreate. So there is neither one more nor one less angel today than God originally created when he made this special class or genus of creation, if I can say it like that. Angels exist, we learned, to worship God and to wait upon him, that is, to do his bidding. They are his messengers and his ministers. He dispatches them into the world to do his will. We also learned that angels are God's army. One of the ways that they serve God is by fighting his battles. And in the Old Testament, we saw several episodes in which angels defeated enemies of God's people and thus delivered the people of God because they are God's heavenly host. That's what the word means. We also learned that angels are observers of the church. I almost started my sermon this morning by saying that it's such a privilege to gather here with so many millions of God's creatures. Because the fact is, my beloved, angels now are hovering around us, unperceived amid the throng, wondering at the love that crowned us, glad to join the holy song. We're doing the same thing today here at Bethel Church that the angels are doing in heaven. And they are watching us, as Ephesians 3.10 says, they are spectators. As the church showcases the manifold wisdom of God, the angels desire to look into those things which you see and hear and understand. And I'm sure they are very perplexed that God would favor sinful mortals like us. I'm sure it amazes them and they wonder, though we are subordinate to them in the order of creation, why God would set such favor upon us. So the angels are observers of the church. And any time the church assembles, there are more here than appear on the surface. We have come, as Hebrews 12.22 says, to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, to an innumerable company of angels. Angels are also agents of providence. And that's where we ended last Lord's Day morning. Agents of providence, they are God's ministers as Verse 14 of chapter 1 in Hebrews tells us, Are they not all ministering spirits, sent forth, dispatched, to minister to them who shall be heirs of salvation? Now the heirs of salvation are God's children, you and me. We are heirs. 
God has chosen us as his children to inherit eternal bliss. We are the heirs of salvation. And the angels exist to serve the people of God. They are sent forth to minister to them who are the heirs of salvation. That is a wonderful thought. One way is they are often dispatched from heaven in answer to prayer. When you and I pray, God sometimes sends an angel. You have an example of this in Daniel chapter 9. Would you listen to this? Daniel spends the first 19 verses in Daniel chapter 9 praying to God. And in verse 20, Daniel says, And while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yea, while I was speaking, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation, and he informed me, and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. So one of the things that angels did is they educated God's people when they needed special insight. Here Gabriel comes to give Daniel skill and understanding to inform him of God's will on this occasion. So angels, as on this occasion, are sometimes dispatched in answer to prayer. Remember Genesis 28 when Jacob saw the ladder stretching from the earth to the heaven and on that ladder ascending and descending, constant motion, were the angels of God. They're descending because they've been dispatched to carry out a task on the earth. They're ascending, going back because they've completed an assignment and are going back to get a new assignment. And they are constantly in motion. There's not such a thing as a lazy angel. In the Bible, they are constantly serving the Lord, waiting upon him, doing his bidding. What a wonderful, efficient army exists in the universe that God created. If you look into the 10th chapter of Daniel, you see that one of the ways that angels minister to God's people is by giving them strength in their weakness. Now I wonder if you've ever felt to be especially weak, not only physically, but spiritually. Each one of us, no doubt, feel at times to be inadequate for the tasks of life. We feel the burdens of life to be heavy upon us. And we feel a keen sense of our own weakness in the soul. Well, on this occasion, Daniel, as he sees this vision of the man clothed in linen, he says, when I was left alone after seeing this great vision, there remained no strength in me. What he saw on this occasion drained him and left him very weary and weak. He says, for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. Yet heard I the voice of God's words, and when I heard the voice of his words, then I was in a deep sleep on my face. So he's so weak, he just goes to sleep. And my face was toward the ground, watch this, and behold, a hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. So he's sleeping on his face on the ground, drained of his energy, and suddenly a hand touches him, and he finds himself setting up on his all fours, on his hands and his knees. And the person said to me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved. What a tender way to address him. Understand the words that I speak unto thee and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. I've been dispatched to help you, Daniel. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Then he said unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand, and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. I love that line. 
When you pray, dear child of God, your words are heard, and God dispatches an angel just because of the prayer that you offered. And he comes to strengthen you. Daniel says, there was no strength in me, but he strengthened me and set me upon my feet. So angels are agents of providence. They're often sent in response to prayer. They come to strengthen the saints as they did Daniel in chapter 10, and as they did Jesus in Matthew 4. Do you remember after Jesus had been tempted by the devil, it says, then the devil departed from him, Matthew 4, 11, and angels came and ministered unto him. And my beloved, may I say this is a reality. God uses these strange, mysterious, incredible creatures that we can't begin to really fathom or understand. They're not like us in the sense that they're not physical and material, but they are spirit beings. They're a part of his created order, and he uses them in his providence to strengthen his people, to answer their prayers. They come to deliver from danger. Psalm 34, 7 says, The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. Or to listen to this in Psalm 91, verse 11. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. Here's a promise. God will give his angels responsibility to protect you to keep thee in all thy ways, they shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Now, I don't know how many times I've been delivered that I was not aware of the deliverance. I mean, I'm sure that God protected me from dangers during the night that I didn't even know existed. I'm sure he has saved me from accidents on the highway that I wasn't even aware that he was delivering me. But the wonderful truth is that angels are used by God to deliver us, to hold us up in their hands, lest we dash our foot against a stone. So many deliverances in your life and mine, my beloved, are due to these special agents of divine providence. I know they delivered Lot in the Old Testament. You remember the story in Genesis 18 when God is about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah and he sends these angels to encourage Lot to get out while the getting is good. And it says, Lot lingered, and the angel grabbed him by his hand and compelled him out. So while Lot procrastinated, the angel said, I'm saying we need to get out right now. And he dragged Lot and his wife out of town. It says, the angel laid his hand upon Lot, the Lord having mercy upon him. How many times has God delivered you in his mercy when you didn't have the sense to take care of yourself? Lot lingered, but the angel pulled him out, God being merciful to him. Another occasion is when the angel came and stopped the lion's mouth. Do you remember Daniel chapter 6? Daniel is in the den of lions. And the king the next morning at daybreak comes to the mouth of the cave and says, Daniel, O Daniel, is thy God whom thou servest able to deliver thee from the hungry lions? And Daniel replies, the God of heaven sent his angel. To stop the mouths of the lions. Angels deliver God's people from danger. They strengthen them in their weakness. They are sent in response to prayer. And they protect children. Matthew 18.10, Jesus said, He that offends one of these little ones, it is better for a millstone to be hanged about his neck and he be drowned in the depths of the sea. For in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father in heaven. I know angels protect little children. It's a miracle that I grew up to adulthood. It's a miracle that any young child grows up to adulthood. 
you know, we're awfully protective these days. When I was a child, we used to drop suckers in the dirt, pick them up and blow them off and eat them anyway. Drink out of garden hoses, you know. You say, how did you survive with all of the germs that are out there? Well, God protects children. I know as I think about my grandchildren and some of the near scrapes and the near tragedies that we've averted, you know, it's only by the grace of God. I firmly believe that God sends his angels to take care of each one of us in our lives. Now, this is the biblical picture of angels. This is what the Bible teaches. But you know, don't you, that there are a lot of ideas about angels that are not biblical. And the Jews in Jesus' day, the Hebrews, held a number of extra-biblical ideas about angels. The Jewish people to whom the book of Hebrews is written held some ideas about angels that almost bordered on superstition. They believed angels were instruments of bringing God's word to men and implementing God's will in the earth. They saw angels as God's cabinet or God's senate or his counselors. And many of the Jews believed that God never did anything without consulting with the angels. Now, we can't find that in the Bible. In fact, I do find the very opposite. Who has been his counselors to instruct him? Says Romans chapter 11. God doesn't need any brain trust surrounding him that he consults. He doesn't have a board of directors that they all pool their genius to make decisions. Our God is sovereign, right? He's omniscient. He's all wise and he doesn't need counselors. But many of the Jews in that day believed that angels were God's cabinet, like the president has his cabinet who instructed him, and he never did anything without consulting them for their views. In fact, that's the way they interpret Genesis 1.26, which reads, let us make man in our own image, instead of saying that the us means God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Many of the Jews interpreted that verse to mean that the one God used angels in creation. That's the way that they interpret that verse. Some Jews believed that angels objected to the creation of man, and were subsequently judged for their insubordination. They believed that seven angels comprised what is known as the presence angels. That is, these are seven angels who are always in the presence of God, and they actually named these angels. There was Raphael, and Thanuel, and Uriel, and Michael, and Gabriel. You know, just as the president or the king may have his entourage, or the president may have his advisors that travel with him, Wherever he goes, they believe that these angels were presence angels. And the Jews also believed that there were 200 angels that were charged with controlling the movements of the heavenly bodies, keeping everything on course. Interestingly, this passage in Hebrews tells us that all things are upheld by the Son, right? He's the creator and he upholds or sustains creation. But the Jews believed that angels were responsible for sustaining creation. They believed that one mighty angel took care of the seas and that others controlled different forms of weather like the rain and the snow and hail and thunder and lightning. They believed that there were recording angels who wrote down every word uttered on this earth in a book in heaven so that people could be judged by the things that they say. Recording angels. They believed that every nation had its personal guardian angel and that every child had its personal guardian angel. In fact, so many angels they believed existed that one rabbi said every blade of grass has its own personal angel. 
Some of the Jews even worshipped angels. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshipping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. He says, don't let anybody deceive you or rob you from the blessing of knowing the truth because they claim to know things that they really don't know. They're intruding into areas that they've not seen. And he says one of the things that they claim to believe is they worship angels. They believe angels are on the same plane as God. Now, I think we can say that there's a mystical fascination among people in the modern world. Even though we are highly technology-centered, I mean, we've experienced the technological revolution. We know how uh, ones and zeros go together to make computer code, and we know that machines are very powerful, yet still there's a strange fascination, religiously speaking today, with the mystical and the ethereal. And it really borders a lot on ancient paganism or Gnosticism in which anything that was mysterious, that couldn't be explained in a scientific laboratory, was deemed to be divine and therefore worthy of worship. And isn't it strange that so many people today, instead of worshiping the God of the Bible and the Lord Jesus Christ, would become so fascinated by angels to the point that they worship these angels. And they believe that if we can have pictures of angels and statues of angels, that it will protect our home and guard us from any danger, many people today would fall into this category. The Jews believed that angels were the highest created beings in the universe and that they mediated between God and men. They even believed there was a specific angel called the death angel. And maybe you've heard preachers before say the death angel went through Egypt. That's an old Jewish idea. The idea of the grim reaper, you know, that comes to inflict death. That's an old Jewish idea. That's not a biblical idea. The Bible never uses the expression death angel. It does tell us that God's angels help God's children when they die. You remember Luke 16, when Lazarus died, the angels transported him to Abraham's bosom, which is a euphemism for paradise. They believed, like I said, that angels were the highest beings in creation and that they rivaled the position of God and that they were the mediators were the instruments between God and men, the angels. And that brings us to the particular backdrop of the book of Hebrews. The Jews believed that the old covenant had been brought to them. The law of Moses had been given to them by angels. And this, more than everything else, exalted angels in their esteem. They saw and believed angels mediated the law. And they were right about that. There are two verses in your New Testament. Would you listen to them real quickly? Acts 7.53 and Galatians 3.19. I'll just read these two verses. Acts 7.53 is Stephen's sermon. And he says, Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of that just one, of whom you've now been the betrayers and murderers. Stephen is taking his life in his hands as he's preaching so plainly to this crowd of Pharisees saying that you are the murderers of the Messiah. He says, your fathers have received the law by the disposition of angels. Interesting, that's Acts 7.53, but they have not kept it. The same thought is echoed by Paul in Galatians 3.19 when he says, wherefore then serveth the law? Why did God give the law? It was added because of transgressions. God gave the law because man sinned. 
It was added because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it, that is the law, was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. So the Jews rightly understood that the old covenant was brought to them by angels. But yet the book of Hebrews is written to show us that Jesus came to inaugurate a new covenant. We don't worship God under the law today, do we? How many of you brought your animal sacrifices to church this morning? Did you bring your lambs or your he goats or your bullocks and rams? Did you bring your turtle doves or two young pigeons? Do we have any sprinkling of incense or wave offerings or burnt offerings? Where's the altar of fire? And where are the laws and the regulations that we are to observe? No, my friends, we worship under a new covenant, don't we? We worship in the church, not in Moses' tabernacle. We believe that God gave to Moses and the children of Israel the Ten Commandments, the ceremonial law of all of the offerings and the dietary laws and restrictions, all of that, the sacrificial law, all of that we say has been fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. He kept the law. He lived up to it. And because he fulfilled it, there's no need to go back to it. You see, that's what the Hebrews were in danger of. Hebrews are who? You know, the book is titled Hebrews. Who are these people? They are Jews. Hebrew, Jew, those are synonyms. These are Jewish Christians. These are Christians who have stopped going to synagogue and started going to church. They're not going to the temple on Saturday Sabbath, but they're going to the house of God with the Christians, the believers, on Lord's Day on Sunday. Because they believe that the Messiah has come. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. And everything that the law had pointed toward, Jesus has accomplished and fulfilled. That's the purpose of the book of Hebrews. Therefore, because the reality has come, we don't need the shadow anymore. We don't need the rituals because we have the real thing. The Lord Jesus Christ has lived up to everything that was anticipated in olden times. And since then, redemption is not something that we must still look forward to in the future, but it is something that has been accomplished. Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law. And therefore, he's implemented a new covenant. How do we worship God today? Not by offering animal sacrifices, not by tithing a tenth of our increase, not by following certain dietary laws or cleansing rituals. We worship God today simply by proclaiming the good news of the gospel. In the new covenant dispensation, in the church, you see, the law was mediated by angels, but Jesus is superior to the angels. Because even though he was made a little lower than the angels in his human nature, in his incarnation, he has now been exalted and he is seated at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. And that's the reason that he gives us in this first chapter then, and we'll go through these quickly. If you're a note taker, you may want to write some of these things down. A sequence of quotes from the Old Testament. You see what the writer is saying in Hebrews chapter 1 is, I can prove that Jesus is superior to the angels from your own Old Testament. I don't even need the New Testament. I can go to the Old Testament and prove that the Messiah is superior to the angels. And that's why you have seven quotations in Hebrews 1, 4 to 14, taken from the book of Psalms primarily. For instance, verse 5, he says, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And the implication in that question is he did say that to the Messiah. 
but he never said it to an angel. Unto which of the angels did he say, You're my son? This day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That's a quotation from Psalm 2, verse 7. Verse 5 quotes from Psalm 2, 7, and Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm. When it speaks of the begetting of Christ, according to Psalm 2, he's talking about the resurrection. For that is the context in which he describes the begetting of Christ. Unto which of the angels did he ever say, you're my son? The angels are just the servants, you see. They don't have the access that the son has. This day have I begotten thee. The son is superior to the angels in his relationship, in his name. He says, and again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be my son. That's a quote from Psalm 89, 36. And what he's saying here is that the sonship of Jesus, that whole topic is not merely an ontological concept that is in terms of his divine nature, but it's a mediatorial concept in terms of his incarnation. He was begotten of the Father. And then in verse 6, he says, And again, when he bringeth the first begotten into the world, he saith, Let all the angels of God worship him. Now that's a quote from Psalm 97, 7. You see what he's doing is he's quoting from their own Old Testament. He's quoting from the Psalms, and they knew that these Psalms referred to the Messiah, and he's saying that each of these show the superiority of the Messiah to the angels. Your own Old Testament shows that the Son is superior to the angels. And he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Angels are worshipers of the Son. Then in verse 7, he quotes from Psalm 104, verse 4. When he says, and of the angels he saith, who maketh his angels spirits, that word means winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Notice, thy throne, O God. The Father calls the Son God. He never would have said that to an angel. And he says, your throne is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness. Now, king holds a scepter in his hand. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. These are verses quoting from Psalm 45, verse 6, a psalm which celebrates a royal wedding. And he's describing the elevation, the exaltation of Christ to heaven. And when he's given this position of authority and dominion and dignity, therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Verses 10 to 12 quotes from Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. When he says, and thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. Notice the Father calls the Son Lord. And he says he's the creator. He's the one who laid the foundation of the earth. Now the angels are creatures. They are created beings, but the creator is the Son. They shall perish. That is, the heavens and the earth will perish. Here's a Bible verse that validates the second law of science. The law of entropy, or the second law of thermodynamics that says everything's wearing out. That's true of our world, isn't it? You know, if you buy a new car, a new a truck, it's not long before you have to have it repaired, and you have to replace the tires, and you have to do little tweaks here and there, and you try to keep it running as long as you can. You buy a boat, you've got to keep patching it, right? Because it develops leaks. And little by little, it wears out, and you say, okay, the best thing to do is to put this in the dump and to buy a new one. Because entropy, everything is wearing out. You're wearing out. I'm wearing out, right? My body is not like it once was. I have to tell you, my brain is not as sharp as it once was. My voice is not as resonant as it once was. I have to 
continue to make tweaks. I have to take vitamins. I have to exercise. I have to try to stretch and uh, make the joints work properly, you know? Spray a little WD-40, ain't that right, Brother Sherman, on my joints, you know, here and there. You've got to do what you can to keep going, right? Because we're all on the decline. And pretty soon we're going to go back to the dust from whence we came. The universe is like that. They shall perish. As a vesture thou shalt fold them up. But thou remainest. God never changes. He doesn't age. He doesn't get older. He doesn't deteriorate. They shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? And that's a quote from Psalm 110, verse 1. Now, let me just give you this real quickly. Psalm 110 is the key passage in the book of Hebrews. If you want an Old Testament connection to the book of Hebrews, it's the 110th Psalm. It is either directly quoted or alluded to and echoed 13 times in the letter to the Hebrews. It plays such an important role in this epistle. It's echoed or cited specifically in chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 1, verse 13, chapter 5, verse 6, chapter 5, verse 10, chapter 6, verse 10, chapter 7, verse 3, 7, verse 11, 7, verse 17, 7, verse 21, chapter 8, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 12, Chapter 10, verse 13, and finally chapter 12, verse 2. What I'm saying is, Hebrews is really a sermon based on the 110th Psalm. That's what it appears. And the 110th Psalm pictures Jesus as both a king and a priest. Now, in the Old Testament, you never had anyone who occupied both offices. Uzziah tried to be, he was the king, he tried to play the role of priest, but God judged him with leprosy. Saul, who was a king, tried to also play the role of the priest, but God judged him. There's only one person in the Old Testament who was both a king and a priest, and his name was Melchizedek, Genesis 14. And interestingly, Hebrews 5 and 7 is going to go into great detail about Melchizedek. And Psalm 110 says that Christ, the Son of God, is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, and he's also the king on the right hand of God. King and a priest, like Melchizedek, one of the most mysterious characters in all the Bible. Psalm 110 shows Jesus at the right hand of God, for he never said to any angel, sit on my right hand. And whenever you say that Jesus' place is at the right hand of the Father, somebody says, well, that doesn't mean he's sitting on the throne of God, he's just near to God on his right hand, well, compare that to Revelation 3.21, which says, To him that overcometh, I will grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. To sit at the right hand is a euphemism. It doesn't mean he's any different from the father or that his sovereign reign as king is any lower than the father. To sit at his right hand is simply a euphemism, which means that he occupies the position of greatest honor. The point of Hebrews 1 is that Jesus' place is on the throne. Angels' place is before the throne. Jesus' place is on the throne. Angels' place is before the throne. Who's in the superior position? The Lord Jesus Christ. All in all, this passage, my beloved, indicates that the Son is superior to angels in His name, in His relationship, in His dignity, in His authority, in His character, in his position or his posture. They are servants, he's the son. 
They are created, Christ is the creator. They are ministers, Christ is the king. They play a role, but Christ is the sovereign, immutable God. The purpose of Hebrews chapter 1 is to show that though angels were mediators of the law, Christ is the mediator of a better covenant, for he is far superior to the angels. I started the sermon this morning by explaining that this entire passage is framed in the context of the idea of a hierarchy, a structure that shows different levels of authority. And in the hierarchy of creation, man is lower than the angels. That's true. We were made lower than the angels. And even though the Son of God assumed human nature, he became one of us and was made lower than the angels for a time. He has now been exalted to a position that is far above and far superior to them. In chapter 2, verse 5, which says, For unto the angels he hath not put in subjection the world to come, the world to come, the future world. That's an eschatological reference talking about heaven and the eternal state. The surprising point that he makes in this verse is that redeemed men, because of what Jesus Christ has done in their stead, will one day also be in a position higher than the angels. You and I will one day be superior to them because we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ, and he has by inheritance obtained so much better a name than the angels. And that, my friends, is the wonderful news of the gospel of grace, a message that is fundamentally superior to the law of Moses. And that will be the focus as we move on into the second chapter of Hebrews. We are treading some deep water, dear friends. I hope it's not too deep for you. Bring your waiters next Sunday if it is. Because uh, this is good news. This is truth. You're not hearing a lot of truth in the world. The world, my friends, has lost its mind. I mean, people say there are 100 different genders. People identifying as a Frisbee or a potato chip. <laughs> I mean, th they say there are UFOs and we're visited by aliens. And the ideas that are propagated in this world are insanity personified. It's the quintessence of insanity Mankind, modern man has lost its mind. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. And here's a place you can come to hear some truth. And you know what truth we've heard today? Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. So thankful that he has these mysterious creatures to, take, to help us, to minister to us. My beloved, let's never forget, only he deserves our worship. And he is indeed sublime. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, your Savior is the king of the universe. May we bow before him and say, Lord, let me do your bidding. What a privilege it is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in this world.
You are listening to Grace Alone Radio Network, streaming Bible teaching from a primitive Baptist perspective, around the clock and around the world.